So this is uh, from a CBS News article from this past February. I wonder if it had anything to do, it was on February 13th that it came out. I wonder if it had anything to do with February 14th. My guess is it did. It starts off, does true love exist? A large majority of Americans believe it does. And most say that they themselves have experienced true love at some point in their lives, including most men and women. But finding true love may not be easy. Less than one in five Americans think most of the people around them have found true love. And many who have experienced it, particularly among women, say it is different from what they expected it to be. This is such an important topic to talk about love, receiving love, experiencing love, because we are by nature relational beings. God has made us to be in relationship. In people's pursuit of finding true love, they often experience disappointment, disillusionment, and even depression. All of the people we want to love and receive love from are flawed in one way or to one degree or another. So I tell Amy regularly that she never disappoints me. Is that correct? Tell her regularly. But here, in front of you all, I'm going to let you in on something. I need to tell you that on two occasions in 25 years of marriage, you made inedible meals. (laughs) A bitter eggplant absolutely inedible, and I think you tried to take me out one time with some volcanic Mongolian beef. (laughs) Obviously, you recognize that I'm playing a little bit here with this discussion, Um, but even someone as wonderful as my wonderful bride, Amy, she cannot love flawlessly nor can she love endlessly. If she were to love me perfectly every single day, which would only take place through God's grace, if she were to love me perfectly every single day for the rest of her life, at some point her love would come to a screeching halt. Life ends, and thus ends that experience in this world of that relationship. This morning, we want to talk about a love like no other. A love like no other. This love that we'll talk about this morning is perfect in its quality, perfect in its quantity, and perfect in its duration. It's a love that changes our eternal destiny. It's a love that can fulfill us no matter what it is we experience. It's a love that draws us with openness toward its source. This is real, enduring, healthful, life-changing love. God has been expressing and demonstrating His love 
for His creation from the beginning. And He particularly expresses His love from the beginning for mankind. If you think about the garden, which we our minds go back to regularly, it's the, the beginning of the earthly experience and what God has recorded for us. It was in the garden, in a state of rebellion and hiding from God, that God provided for Adam and Eve a covering for their sinfulness. God, in the face of rebellion, providing covering. Uh, God speaks of His care for His people Israel. And the important realization is, God didn't love Israel because they were more in number than any other people on the face of the earth. He chose to care for Israel, He tells us in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, He chose to deal kindly with them because He loves them. He loves them. The love that God demonstrates is also described as an everlasting love. I'm always taken by the reality of when God expresses things. You've probably seen on a card or heard in a sermon about Jeremiah 31.3. I'll read the verse, then I want to remind you of what's taking place. Jeremiah 31.3 The Lord appeared to him from far away. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. This is a wonderful verse of Scripture in any context. But when understood in the actual context of when it was that message was sent to Israel, that's of very uh, great importance. Because the people of Israel were experiencing disappointment and bondage. They had been taken captive to the land of Babylon because of their sinfulness and their rebellion. They were experiencing the faithfulness of God in the sense that God told them, if you don't allow the land to have its Sabbaths, in other words, every seven years it would have some rest, the land would have rest, I will ensure that there is a Sabbath for the land. And part of the reason that the people were in Babylon as opposed to in Israel was so that the land could make up for those 70 Sabbaths that had been missed. But while they were experiencing the consequences of their not giving the land its Sabbaths and it getting it because God ensured it, God says to them, I want you to know this, even while this is going on, my love for you has not stopped. You're in the book of Hosea chapter 2. It's a very similar context. Hosea is a prophet to the people of Uh, Israel and Judah, he's telling them about God's care for them and the fact that they constantly wandered away after other gods that God was, was going to 
take notice of that. There was going to be a problem. There was going to be a consequence for their rebellion because their rebellion was hurting them and it was not helping them to be in a right under awareness of who God is. And so the people of Israel were experiencing this difficulty of the consequences of their decisions. But listen to how God, through Hosea, communicates to this people that were struggling to see God properly. Verse 14 of Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her, speaking of Israel, into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. The valley of Achor reminds us of when in Joshua's day, Achan and his family rebelled against the Lord and were judged for it. God was going to take that valley of judgment and make it a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. In that day declares the Lord, you will call me, will you read it with me? My husband. And no longer call me my Baal, Baal, or my Lord. You'll call me husband. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the heavens, and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. People speak of loving one another. And that's nice. Words of love are nice. Words of love should be expressed. But words of love without substance are not real love. And the love that God has demonstrated, continues to demonstrate, will always demonstrate is a substantive love. A love with substance. It's real and it's glorious. With that being said, I want for us to turn in our Bibles, if you could, to the Gospel of John chapter 3. God's love has substance. John chapter 3, we're going to read verses 14 through 18. Our text this morning is 16, 17, and 18. I was going to go through verse 21 and then reality struck. And that is that you don't want to be here till 1 o'clock with me still preaching behind the pulpit. John chapter 3, look at verses 14 and following. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son 
that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. As we think about God's love, this is very clearly a passage on God's love. God's love is demonstrated and offered in this passage. And as we think through it this morning, for those of us that have already experienced what it's like to truly be loved by God through Christ, this will be a source of encouragement and refreshment to our soul. It will cause us to be stirred toward rejoicing and giving thanks to the Lord. It will also cause us to be stirred to share this glorious love message and love truth of God with a world that has not yet experienced this kind of real, life-changing, life-giving love. As we look at it first, we note this. God's love is expressed in sending His Son. God's love is expressed in sending His Son. Look at verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. This concept of sending has the idea, communicates the idea of mission. Mission. Jesus was sent on a mission. He had an objective. He was sent to accomplish something. And you can see again and again as you watch and read through the Gospels and see the mission of Christ, it was what what really moved Him and motivated Him. All of the decisions He made were wrapped around this concept of fulfilling the mission that He had been assigned. So I, I will remind you of this passage from John chapter 4 and verse 34 where Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. This was said on the heels of Jesus interacting with the woman at the well and having told her that He Himself was a a well springing up to everlasting life that would never run dry. And His disciples come back and they knew He was hungry. They knew He was thirsty. And they wanted to give Him some food. Come, take some food. And He says, no, no, no. I have food to eat that you don't know about. The food was to accomplish the purpose that God had sent Him for. Jesus came on mission. And that mission was in fact a love mission. God sent Jesus into the world. And so we see this concept of God's love expressed by sending His Son. Secondly, we want to notice this from verse 16. God's love is expressed in giving His Son. God's love is expressed in giving His Son. Look at verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Just a technicality here. Um, Look at your Bibles for a moment. Do you have a red letter edition? Yes? If you do, what color is verse 16? 
Do you know that the, the color in your Bible is not inspired? Most likely, Jesus' words, verbal words there, end at verse 15. And John the Apostle starts now summarizing in verse 16. Now, does that make any difference? Not really. Because all of the words of Scripture are words from God, inspired by God. They're theopneustos, breathed out by God. So all of the words are inspired to the same level, whether they came from the mouth of Jesus or from the pen of the Apostle John. The reason that I want to to note that this is likely the Apostle John, as opposed to the words of Jesus, is just that Jesus is now, would be, if, if this were Jesus' words, he's calling God, God, rather than Father, which is his normal title for God. And he's referring to himself in the third person, whoever believes on him, which is not abnormal. The likelihood is, this is not dogmatic, it doesn't matter one way or the other, but the likelihood is is that John the Apostle has now taken over and is now writing a summary of, uh, or a, a commentary on what Jesus is offering. So, what is being said here in verse 16? God, in this way, or to this extent, loved the world. This is how He loved Him. How He loved the world. He gave His only Son, or His one-of-a-kind, only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves and He gives. Jesus is the gift of God. I want, I want for us to think about this. And this is, this is hard for our minds to jockey with. I was jockeying with it just in these last few days and it's like it starts to make your mind bend a little bit. It's hard for us to think backwards before our birth. It's hard for us to think thousands of years backwards from our birth. It's hard for us to think back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's hard for us to do that. But harder than that is before Genesis 1.1. What's happening? How does it all look? What is it like? But I think it's important. God has been enjoying the loving, perfect fellowship of His Son forever. God the Father has been enjoying the loving, perfect fellowship with His Son forever. Throughout eternity, the three persons of the Trinity have been loving each other. And God, at a point in history, you ready for this? Gave Him up as a sacrifice to accomplish our rescue from our sin. Jesus, God made flesh, 
lived for us, died as a sacrifice for our sin, was buried, and Jesus, God made flesh, rose. Jesus, God made flesh, resurrected, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. The second person of the eternal triune God now laden with a resurrected human body forever. God, having enjoyed perfect harmony and fellowship with the second person, His Son, for all of eternity, allows His Son, dictates, decrees His Son to take on human flesh to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God gave His Son. Think in terms of relationship. Think in terms of the dearest of people in your life. Think in terms of saying, I love them and my one of a kind, my only begotten, the only one of this kind, son, is going to be the one who pays the price for their rebellion. They're not asking for it. They don't even know they need it. But I'm going to do this. This is love of substance. Blah, 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 blah. I love you, I love you, I love you until I don't. Blah, 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 blah. I love you until you make the bitter eggplant. Or the volcanic Mongolian beef. Or you don't quite meet the level of my expectations for you. Or you get a little older. You don't quite look like the trophy wife you once looked like. My husband's muscles now are shrinking. He's become wrinkly. Until until there's real trauma. Until it looks like there's competition. Until he or she is not very nice. Until he or she doesn't bring to the table... All the things that I thought they promised. And now I'm not so sure that this one I fell in love with, I really love. And don't tell me you haven't heard that commentary thousands of times over. It happens, unfortunately, every day. And some of you have experienced the turmoil of that horror. It really stinks. I love you until I don't. This this is entirely different. 
God loves and loves and loves. And He brings to the table His Son. And that sacrifice is enough to forever remove our sin. And forever provide us with righteousness. And forever provide us with life. And forever provide us sonship. Forever provide us heritage. An inheritance. Because God so loved the world that He gave His very one-of-a-kind Son. Sin, as God has told us from the very beginning, causes death. Spiritual death and the death of many other things. You can see how it affects relationships. There's physical death. And ultimately, if not redeemed or paid for, eternal death away from the presence of God. God gave up His Son in love. With the desire and the capability to accomplish His mission of saving rebellious sinners like me and like you, He's done it. This exhibits a substantive element of a God who says, I love you, and it's not just words. God's love is expressed in sending His Son. God's love is expressed in giving His Son. Thirdly, God's love is expressed in lifting up His Son. Now we're going backwards in our in our commentary here. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. God's love is expressed in this lifting up. Now, I want for us to think about it for a moment. This, this is very humbling. This lifting up of the Son references the crucifixion of Christ. Where the second person of the triune Godhead who spoke the world into existence with words from His mouth is hanging on a tree naked and bloody. And it makes our minds marvel at expressions that God declares about that cross scene. For us, it's very, uh, there's a certain amount of emotion that floods into our minds and hearts as we think about a, a crucified, lifted up, hanging, Lord, humbled, bloodied, rejected, gasping for breath, Lord. We hear and we read the words of Isaiah 53. Verse 10, where it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord, or better translated, it was the pleasure of the Lord 
It was the pleasure of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when he makes his soul an offering for guilt. Pause. Not his guilt. Mine. God says, it pleased me. It pleased me to take this person that I've been in perfect, loving relationship and fellowship with him forever. To have him take on human flesh and to attribute to him sins of people that if it weren't for my intervention would just happily, merrily go on about their sin caring less about me. Remember, no one seeks after God. But God seeks after us. And so Jesus hangs on a cross, bloodied and naked and humbled and hurting and declared guilty for sins he did not commit so that people like me and like you could receive from God redemption, forgiveness of sin, and pure, perfect, eternal righteousness, which results in life. So think about this. According to Galatians 3, Jesus became a curse for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, Jesus became sin for us. He was attributed with sin for us, on our account, for our benefit. While Jesus was lifted up, the weight of sin, the guilt of sin, the condemnation of sin pressed down, pressed down upon the Son of Man. So Jesus articulates with His mouth, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And in that lifting up, there was a pressing down. A declaration of guilt and sin and condemnation upon Him who did no sin. Neither was guilt or vileness or deceit found on His mouth. This is what God was pleased to do to redeem people like you and me. This is absolutely, utterly, astonishingly love. Love like you've never experienced from anyone else, nor could you experience from anyone else, unless that love that you're experiencing from some other person is a love that comes from God through that person. You'll never find love like this anywhere else. It's life-changing, life-transforming, eternal, destiny-changing kind of love. So grievous and challenging was this transaction that Jesus cried out to His Father, My God! My God, why have You forsaken Me? But remember, He was sent on a mission. God sent his son. God gave his son. God lifted up his son. That same Jesus that said, Why have you forsaken me? also declared beautifully, gloriously, victoriously, It is finished. 
And it's in the perfect tense, which means it has been accomplished. It stands finished now and stands finished forever. The author of Hebrews says it was a once for all redemption through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all. God gave Him up because He loves us. The love of God in sending His Son, giving His Son, lifting up His Son, accomplished God's plan to redeem people. Ordinary people. For God so loved the world. People of every variety. Every nation. Every tribe. Every tongue. Every intellectual capacity. Every socioeconomic region. You're talking about the, the, the uber wealthy to the poorest of the poor. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. It doesn't matter what your intellectual, emotional, economic capacities are. God sent His Son into the world to redeem people just like you. Just like you. God's love is expressed again and again. As we look a little further in here, we'll look at a fourth concept now. God's love is expressed in removing condemnation. God's love is expressed in removing condemnation. We'll see it in verses 16, 17, and 18 in different ways. Look at verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not what perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already or has been condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In verse 16, the removal of condemnation is expressed by not perishing. It stands in contrast to receiving eternal life. So God's love is expressed in removing eternal death and providing eternal life. Do you see that contrast in verse 16? The the change from eternal death, perishing, to eternal life, living. In verse 17, John describes God's purpose in uh, Jesus' mission. God did not send Jesus to bring condemnation, but salvation. Do you see that in verse 17? Did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. See that? The difference? Not condemnation, but salvation. Verse 18. In verse 18, those who are believing... This is a beautiful thing, so I'm going to slow down here for a second. Verse 18. Whoever believes, present tense, in Him is not condemned present tense present tense passive voice here you go use your language lesson for this morning those who are actively believing those who are believing are not being condemned being means it's coming from the outside but it's also present so if you've trusted Christ as your savior 
Not only will you not receive condemnation at the end, you do not receive condemnation now. Whoever is believing is not being condemned. That is a vitally important statement and that that is not typical understanding that. We're very... We're very normal, right? And so when we do good things, we say, okay, good things should come my way. We do bad things, we think bad things should come our way. God is not like us. Believe. Not only will you not be condemned on the last day, right now you stand not condemned. This is good news for today, friend. God is gloriously good. However, those who are not believing, those who are not believing, are standing in judgment or condemnation. So we're in the middle of verse 18 now. Whoever does not, present tense, believe, is condemned already, is how my version translates it. But I believe others, if you have a different rendering, which would be, have not been or have, uh, haven't been condemned. So, those, excuse me, have, I'm saying that incorrectly. Give me a second to, to recapture my thought. Whoever does not believe is condemned or has been, that's what I'm trying to say, has been condemned already. So, those that are in a position of not believing right now already stand under that condemnation. So this is a very important thing for us to talk about for, for a moment. I want for us to develop it in the next couple of minutes. In this passage, the emphasis of Jesus' role is one of salvation. Salvation. He does also tell us in chapter 5 that all judgment is committed to Him. In chapter 8 and verse 16, he said that judgment that's going to come is going to come in accordance with truth. Revelation. What God has revealed. In chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to tell you, I am, didn't come to judge. I came to reveal or open your eyes to the truth. And as part of that discussion, he says, I don't judge you on the last day the one that judges you is what has been revealed in Scripture. It's a very interesting concept here because all judgment's been committed to the Son, but He lets you know He's not standing, even in that day, in condemnation. What He's going to do is He's going to point to the truth. And the truth itself condemns. Which means, friend, wherever you are in your understanding of things, right now, what you need more than anything else is your eyes open to the truth. Want your eyes open to the truth of who God is, what God has done, and what God is for you. Those who remain in disbelief in many ways experience the end of their faith. Please hear that. Those who remain in disbelief in many ways experience the end of their faith. They trust in little gods that cannot save. 
and the miseries of those idols harm them both in life and in death. Without the deliverance that Jesus provides through His sacrificial death, those who remain in unbelief will not only experience their own condemnation that they provide for themselves, but a judgment that comes from God. The condemnation that Jesus and the Bible writers describe is utterly frightening. I'll capture it with a few phrases. Hellfire. Unquenchable fire. Outer darkness. Tribulation and distress. And the list goes on from here. These terrors Jesus came to warn against and He provided a way to eliminate these terrors for you. Jesus' mission and the expression of God's love was to remove from you this condemnation. He did not come to condemn, but to save. Which is the last point of our discussion this morning. God's love is expressed in providing eternal life. God's love is expressed in providing eternal life. Let me just pause for a second because I think it's important to understand to appreciate the eternal life that God provides for us through Christ. There is an equal and opposite appreciation that must be there for what we've been saved from. So for the profound awareness of what God provides in Jesus in giving us life, it results from the profound awareness of why that life is so valuable. Life with God forever in joy and peace and and glory over against wallowing in my own miseries for that I have produced for myself and the judgment that comes as a result of those things. These two opposite ends of the spectrum and God's love is expressed in sparing us from one and delivering us unto the other. So look at these verses again. In light of that salvation or eternal life offered, God For God so loved the world, in verse 16, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So we have eternal life in verse 15. Eternal life in verse 16. Might be saved in verse 17. How does God offer eternal life or salvation through Christ? This is mind not blowing. This is mind healing. 
The opposite of destroying our minds is to have them made well. And what God provides in Jesus makes our minds well. This this is what we were made for. To experience real love and real life as a gift from God. This is perfect wellness. How does God offer this salvation through Jesus? Well, we talked about it, but I want, I want to just make a couple of points that will help to bring it all together. Okay, Jesus became a curse for us. We talked about it. He became sin for us. And in Romans chapter 8, in verse 3, this is just incredible. In Romans 8, 3, Jesus condemned sin in His flesh. Jesus condemned sin. (laughs) That has no power or authority or dominion or devastation upon you ever, ever again. Jesus condemned sin through His own sacrificial death on a cross. This is why it matters so much that Jesus became a curse for us. He defeated sin. And He defeated death. It's real. It's substantive. As our substitute, Jesus was declared guilty and He paid that debt. Listen to this verse from Roman, uh, Revelation excuse me, chapter 1. I spent some time just reveling in this in my office this morning. This is just absolutely astonishingly glorious. Listen to these words. I know we've been here for a little while. Please, give me five more minutes of your time. Revelation 1. Look at this verse. From Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. I was looking, just thinking, okay, what is that word freed? What is that word freed? And it comes from the most generic Greek term that you could have. For those of you that have ever studied Greek, the word luo, the luo is seen in all of your um, parsing of verbs. It's like, it's like the basis. It's like in, in, in English, you've got like is. Luo. Just change all the endings and it changes what the word means. Luo means to release, to free, to untie, to remove the boundaries, to unbind. Jesus, in His love for me and His love for you, releases us. He removes the ties. He frees us from our sins. How? By His blood through the sacrifice of his life pouring himself out for us he takes all the tethers off condemnation not on me condemnation of sin gone forever released removed and there's a relationship it's a distant relationship between the word perish in john 3:16 apalumi and this word luo here Those who believe will never perish. And the reason they'll never perish is because Jesus 
set them free by his own blood. This is just mind healing. To understand, you all know you're sinners. I know I'm a sinner. I tell you I'm a sinner. A lot of the things that I struggle with, I just bring it out here and let you know because I don't want you to think you're coming in here and the holy guy is going to tell you what, what to do to get better. There ain't no holy ones other than the fact that we've been made holy by God. We struggle with sin, but Jesus condemned sin in His flesh. And because He loves us, He set us free from sin, binding us, holding us, and condemning us. This is such good news. So all who have come to Him, Jesus, who have received Him, who believe Him, have all their sins removed. For the believer in Jesus Christ, our sin has forever been dealt with, which is why we can, with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.1, say, there is therefore now no condemnation. It's for those who are in Christ Jesus. In John chapter 4, he talks about the fact that perfect love that has received its target in us casts out fear. There's no fear of the judgment for those that have come to know Jesus. The reality of God's love for us helps us to understand that no matter what is happening in front of our faces, no matter what we're experiencing in our minds, God is for us. God is for us. Last verse. Romans chapter 8, please. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture that for many of us is very familiar. Just how much is God for us? Just how much is God for you? These verses will answer that question. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the One who died. More than that, who was raised. Who was at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding. For us, the one who could condemn you is the one who died for you, who was raised for you, who is interceding for you. Just how for you is he? God gave him up. Jesus gave up his life. Jesus bore your sin debt. Jesus was buried for you. Jesus was raised for you. Jesus has ascended for you. Jesus still now, at this very moment, is praying for you. Is God for you? God's for you. This is such good news. This is why we gather together each week. We remind each other. We get worn down by all the the things we experience outside of us. And maybe even more by the things that are going on inside of us. And we come together and we say, God is for us. How do we know? He's expressed it through sending His Son. All these gifts come because God loves us. You still feel like you need to search for true love? In that search for true love, have you experienced endless disappointments? 
People have let you down time and time again. Yeah, when we're looking for love in all the wrong places, that's what we experience. But we're talking about a love that is eternity changing. We're talking about a love that will never come to an end even when your life is over. We're talking about a love that ends the search for love. Because to be loved by God is to be loved indeed. It's a love like no other. Have you experienced it? If not, you can this morning. Right where you are, you can talk to God. You can tell Him that you want to experience this life-changing, eternity-changing love. You can tell Him that you realize that you're a sinner. That you believe that Jesus Christ has paid for that sin. And you can even use the words of our text this morning. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You can, you can just tell Him you believe. Brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you who have experienced this love and been enriched by it, I hope that you've been reminded again this morning. And I hope that it's been a, a source of refreshment to you. I also hope that it, this reminder of this experience of love motivates you. Because there's a whole lot of people all around you every day that have never tasted this kind of love. Let's hold it out to them. Let's hold our God out to them. He's come not to condemn, but to save. Tell them. He alone can bring that to fruition. You and I can tell them. We can demonstrate having experienced it. and We can hold Him out for them to see. Let's pray together. Father, thank You. Thank You that You have told us of Your love. And it was not just words. Your love has been demonstrated in action through sending Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank You. Thank You that You love us. Thank You that You bore our sin and condemnation and our guilt and You've removed it from us forever. Thank You. Thank You for opening our eyes to see Your goodness, to taste Your grace, to experience real life. I pray, Father, we pray together this morning that we would rejoice in Your goodness. And we pray for those that have not yet come. Dear Father, open the eyes of the blind. Take people's stony hearts and give them hearts of flesh that they might look and live, that they might see and believe and receive from you life forever. In Jesus' name, amen.